those who are in the uh, business of mining resources, turning them into products that are going to go to landfill, those companies, no matter how green their strategies are getting, I think are going to be outflanked unless they really buck their ideas up. Smart energy coupled with battery storage will mean that we can store, deploy and regulate demands in a way which enables more renewables, more clean energy, more micro-generation and distributed energy to come onto the grid. We've seen quite a lot of pushback against the, the US political situation and the people trying to distance themselves from that position. So yeah, it needs just more big companies to stand up and not be afraid of getting into the weeds of positive lobbying. Because I think generally in businesses there are a lot of people who want to do the right thing and somehow they don't either have the permission or they don't have the energy to get there and if you can bring them together and demonstrate that they can make the change happen you can unleash a lot more passion, energy, success around the business because as a sustainability team you can't do it all yourselves anyway. Hello, hello and welcome back to the Sustainable Business Covered podcast. ED editor Luke Nichols here, uh, and long time no speak really. Um, after two months away, we've dusted off the microphone and returned. And uh, we thought it was time to, to refresh uh, and really get this podcast back uh, into the full swing of things. So here we are, and uh, like a perfectly formed circular economy, we've returned to the place where it all started because we are coming to you live from ED Live 2017, just as we did for last year's um, show when we first launched the podcast. Now, no ED podcast would feel complete without the silky tones of ED's trusty reporters. And so sat here to my left is the green innovation whiz kid, should we call him, Matt Mace. Oh, is the official title now, I have got that. <laughs> and over to my right, George Ogilvy, the green policy junkie that is reporter George Ogilvy. How are you? I'm very good, Luke. Uh, it's been a long time since my voice has been heard on this podcast. It Contrary has. to reports, I am still alive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, uh, yeah, it's a kind of an emotional return after two months. Um, Matt, I mean, 2017 so far, five months in now. Best, best moment of the year so far in terms of kind of reporting on things? Oh, God. Um, I suppose I did, I, get, I did get quite a nice interview uh, last week with Ellen MacArthur. Yes, um, that was good. Fascinating woman to speak to, um, and funny enough, I got to got to speak to Tony Juniper for a bit as well, um, who I believe is, is lurking around here at he some is. point. Yeah. I believe he's just around the corner, yeah, on the on the main stage today. But we'll uh, yeah, we'll speak about him in a second. So yeah, I think I think that's definitely uh, been a highlight so far of, of 2017. Yeah, George. Um, I think personally, for me, it was a while ago now, but being able to secure that chat with. Uh, Trump's climate change advisor, Myron Ebel. Yes, yeah, um, yeah, that's fantastic, yeah. Was. It was perfectly timed, wasn't it, just <laughs> after the election, yeah. Mm. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, good stuff. Um, so, yeah, kind of missed this, actually, kind of us getting around the table, um, having a chat, stepping away from writing and being able to discuss the industry. Hopefully some of the regular ED listeners have missed it as well. Um, but, yeah, before we get emotional anyway, let's get on with the show. <laughs> Okay, so I uh, hope you're both raring to go, Matt and George, because I um, should probably at this point explain to listeners uh, where we are and, and what's actually happening here today. Um, so it's the very start of the day right now, about 9am, and you can hear behind us there's a lot of crashing and banging yeah, going on. It's just not um, still. <laughs> beauty of live <laughs> exactly. podcasting. Um, yeah, and that buzz really is, uh, is because we're literally recording this entire episode live, uh, or on location, I suppose. Um, from the show floors at ED Live 2017 at the NEC Exhibition Centre in Birmingham. Um, so we're used to doing this in the comfort of our offices back in East Grinstead, but um, a little bit exposed here, but hey, let's, uh, let's see how we go. Um, 
And now, for those of you that don't know about ED Live, um, I mean, where have you been? Because the last couple of months, we've had various stories and adverts kind of plastering uh, the very, ED homepage. Very, very subtle experience, the <laughs> yeah. whole thing, yeah. <laughs> but um, I suppose, yeah, for good, for good reason that we're promoting it, because um, this is the destination event for sustainability and energy managers. We've got four stages here that are set to be filled um, with hundreds of speakers uh, across two days. Thousands of people, we've just gone past the queue on the way in here, thousands mm. of people um, looking to come in um, across the two days here. So the three of us are sat together here in a bit of a makeshift podcast studio. It's just a table on the ED stand. <laughs> and uh, because we're anticipating so much great content to give you over the next 48 hours, we're going to be splitting this episode into two parts, one for each day. Now, I mentioned that the expert speakers um, that will be appearing on stage here today and tomorrow and so this episode, we're going to bring you as, as many interviews as we can. It's a bit of a challenge. We're going to lay down the gauntlet, guys, and see how many interviews we can get across these show floors across two days. You're up for that challenge? Challenge accepted. I'm raring to go. Good stuff. Okay, so um, first of all then, Matt, George, you've got copies of the agenda in front of you. I do, yes. Which sessions or speakers today stand out for you? Is there anything you're going to be jumping for? Is there any speakers here that you definitely want to get onto this podcast? Uh, well... I'm looking at this agenda and straight away I'm seeing the first session here, um, we've got some brilliant speakers. Uh, the session is Brexit, new era for green business and we've got the likes of Tony Juniper, um, Philip Selwood from Energy Saving Trust yeah. and uh, Professor Paul Lensler from Cranfield University. I mean I'm salivating. Just looking <laughs> yeah. At it. yeah, that's on the strategy and innovation stage, Tony Juniper. Um, certainly keen to speak with him. Um, I might try and jump in on that one if I can. Matt, any, any standouts to you? Yeah, so I think I'm going to head over to the Resource Efficiency Theatre first thing. Um, Suzanne Baker is um, there alongside Rob Holdway from Giraffe Innovation and Professor Phil Longhurst from Cranfield University. Um, actually, last year I sat in on um, Suzanne Baker talking about um, resource efficiency last year mm -hmm. and she was basically all about how the internet of things was going to be such a key drive for the circular economy. It was a real fascinating chat so I'm, I'm hoping that it'll be just as insightful this year. Okay well yeah jam-packed day then here but um, going to do our best to get you as close to the action as we can. So let's get to it then. I mean um, Matt, George, you got a plan for first thing this morning? You're going to be sitting in on sessions or? Yeah I'm going to go straight over to that resource efficiency right. uh, one pop myself down in the front row and uh, eagerly await to hear about the internet thing, the okay. circular economy and all, all that jazz. Okay, and George? Yep, and the same will be said for me, but I'll be uh, intently listening all about what Brexit will mean for green business. Ah, anyway. so you're sitting on that policy stage. Mm. Oh, okay, so uh, I guess that leaves, leaves it on me then to grab the first interview, I suppose, if you're both in sessions. Um, well, I suppose like all sustainability leaders, I'll take this challenge head on. <laughs> and there's only one place I think we can start really, and I think that is over at the strategy and innovation stage on that policy session. Mm. Lots of fantastic speakers over there this morning. You mentioned a couple of them. We've also got Bridget Jackson from PwC, David Croft from Diageo. Yeah, but I can't think of anywhere better to start than is with the legend uh, that is uh, Tony Juniper, mm. um, the former Friends of the Earth frontman. Sounds like a band, doesn't it? Former Friends of the Earth <laughs> director who holds countless roles now as um, advisor to a number of institutions and, and as the co-founder to a sustainability consultancy, Roberts Bridge, I think. Okay, so let's see if I can go and grab a chat with Tony Juniper. Wish me luck, guys. Good luck. Best of luck, Luke. Yes, so I have taken up the challenge and um, I've actually been lucky enough to catch Tony Juniper just before he enters the strategy and innovation stage and we're actually sat on the stage right now as it's slowly starting to fill up. Tony, hello, how are you? Yeah, very good, thank you Luke, nice to see you. So um, you're a campaigner, writer, um, sustainability advisor and so you developed a really 
authoritative um, perspective on the current state of corporate sustainability, really. The title of the presentation you're giving here this morning is ex The Expanding Business Case for Sustainability. Can you just give us a little bit of a flavour as to what you're going to be talking about in the session? Yes, I, I think really my, my main task today is, is to reveal how the sustainability theme for businesses is, is not a fashionable fad thing that comes and goes with headlines and little peaks and troughs in the public debate, but something which is very deep and very fundamental to the future of business success and to explain that at several levels at once really, the first being the, the very practical fact of a rising population and expanding economy and massive and increasing pressure on ecosystems and the natural resource base in turn posing really quite serious risks for businesses that are not aware of that and not doing something about it and those risks are down to business continuity, business resilience and of course reputation and, and indeed looking further ahead the effects of regulation and, and if you're not triangulating your strategy and your business model in the light of all of that you're placing yourself in grave danger and I think that's my main point today really and, and to show that actually you know leadership is possible once you've lifted your your perspective and seen beyond the bottom line that there's a whole range of other factors right there right now which you need to be dealing with mm. and if you're not you're you're putting shareholder value at risk mm. And it's, I suppose it's a fascinating time to be having this discussion in particular because, I mean, you look at things at the moment geopolitically and, and also based on green policy here, things are pretty volatile. Um, we're obviously in the midst of an election, we've got Brexit ongoing. You look at green policy, we've got a number of really key plans that are still yet to be released. So much uncertainty. I mean, yes. where, where are the positives? Well, um, so well for, for, for the, for, for, for the uh, business case, this is another dimension of it, actually, and the extent to which real change is happening in the real world and expectations are altering. And if politics is volatile and not necessarily dealing with it directly, then business really does need to be in the driving seat. And if you're expecting Donald Trump or Nigel Farage to sort these things out for you, then probably you've got quite a long wait on <laughs> your hands, and yet the world continues to change irrespective of the politics. Yeah. So that volatility is exactly another reason to be embedded deep thinking around all these subjects in, into, into how you're strategizing for the future and also bear in mind you're not withstanding volatility in domestic politics in quite a few countries there are now actually some really quite strong global frameworks that are beginning to build momentum obviously the Paris Agreement and also the sustainable development goals those are there they're beginning to change the way people are thinking and again you know if you, if you kind of think that is a blip I think probably you're going to be disappointed so the volatility you know it's quite specific it's quite localized but the big picture is very clear in terms of the direction of travel interesting okay and um, on the election quickly I have to ask you a little bit about sure. it um, um, obviously, all of the parties have kind of pledged in their own way how they're going to boost Britain's environment and lead international action on climate change. For you, I mean, what do you believe to be the kind of the top priority or priorities yes. for this UK government? And see if we can well, fit this answer into a minute. Yeah, yeah sure. So the, um, the, 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 the big context for all of this has to be the withdrawal from the European Union. Right. Something like 85% of our environmental legislation just simply in pages of text is derived from agreements we've reached with European partners through negotiations in Brussels. As we withdraw from those frameworks in terms of a legally binding sense, all sorts of questions come in terms of the future of nature conservation, the way in which we're going to be managing the water environment, how we're going to be enforcing regulations on air pollution, assuming we have any. And so this really is, is, is a huge uh, 
question, but I think, certainly for, from my perspective as a campaigner going back many years into Friends of the Earth, I would say that it's also an enormous opportunity, especially if one looks at the rhetoric about taking back control and the extent to which now we can actually not simply just put this into the history books, but to see the European legislation as a platform from which we build higher ambition rather than something we let drift off into the history books. And mm. so I think that is the job for the environmental community in this country, is to see Brexit as the point at which we make the case for higher standards, for nature, for climate change, for water, for biodiversity and all the rest. And I, I think uh, actually the public um, would like that. The politicians, you know, these days they generally follow rather than lead. And so if we can make the case for higher standards, I think we can make a lot of progress. Yeah, okay. And um, you're talking in your session about um, what leadership looks like. Yes. Um, from your expertise as a sustainability advisor then, um, are there any businesses out there that you think really epitomise everything you want in a sustainability leader and perhaps any that you know that aren't your Unilevers, M&S, BT yes. kind of is there a new wave you see coming through? I think there is a new wave coming through you know the, the, those leaders the, those big brands they've set a bar and others are beginning to follow them and I think you know among, amongst some of those those big corporates it's obvious where you know the big challenges lie uh, the most polluting the most resource intensive companies those with plastic in their supply chains they're beginning to, to respond to some of this but I think real leadership actually and this is where the big companies need to be very worried is coming from disruptive startups people who are coming with completely new business ideas uh, keying into as yet un, unfathomed uh, new consumer perspectives, especially amongst millennials who are dematerializing, looking for different kinds of values in what they're buying from companies. And so, you know, th those who are in the uh, business of mining resources, turning them into products that are going to go to landfill, those companies, no matter how green their strategies are getting, I think are going to be outflanked unless they really buck their ideas up. Mm, mm, okay, interesting. And, and, and just while I've got you here then, last question I wanted to ask you is actually, um, I wanted to mention one of the biggest kind of business stories um, that have emerged over the past couple of years, um, that's the Heathrow Airport mm. expansion. Um, I know you were one of the founders of the sustainability consultancy yes. Robertsbridge, um, which actually worked with Heathrow, Heathrow, I think, on the sustainability strategy in line mm. with this expansion. What do you make of that? Because, I mean, we've got green groups like Friends of the Earth, which I know you were previously affiliated mm. with, saying that environmentally there's no way this can be kind of um, a good thing. But then obviously you're working with Heathrow on, on trying to make this a, a good thing. So, I mean, I mean, can expansion be good from an environmental perspective? Are you pleased with what you've seen from Heathrow? We were working with them irrespective of, of the expansion and you know if, if there is going to be a political decision to expand one needs to look at that in the context of what would happen if it wasn't Heathrow. Hmm. So are we expecting to cap air travel at its current level and one looking one one's view of the population data, the economic growth data, the projections for increased demand for transport would suggest that zero growth in the sector is unrealistic and if we do cap it here and we say no runway at Heathrow, no runway at Gatwick, no runway at Stansted, it will probably mean another runway at Schiphol. They've already got six yeah. and actually it's quite funny that the fifth runway there they were, they were jokingly portraying as Heathrow's third because we wouldn't build it in the UK. So a sixth mm. runway in Schiphol, is that any greener than the third one at Heathrow? Discuss, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Mm. Uh, but the simple fact is that the world does enjoy the convenience of air travel. 
and it seems to me that's not going to go away and what we do have to do over the coming couple of decades is to make that as benign as possible and indeed as benign as it needs to be in the light of the Paris Agreement in particular. Yeah. So this is going to mean zero carbon aviation by 2050. Can it be done? It's going to have to be done. That's the simple arithmetic of climate change. Yeah. The alternative is to make the political case that we ban aeroplanes. I tried that during my time at Friends of the Earth to say that we need to ban extra capacity, we need to ban growth in the sector, and it was politically infeasible. Mm -hmm. And in the end, one has to understand that everything we do in the environmental community, no matter how good our science, no matter how rational our arguments, all of it comes back to politics. Mm -hmm. And I can't imagine any politician putting in their manifesto at the moment that they're going to limit air travel, especially through punitive charging, which would be portrayed by the media as an attack on working class families going on holiday to Malaga with their mm. kids for two weeks in August and so um, you know this is the reality we face and actually at Robertsbridge we have discussions around these kinds of questions um, one of the things we've decided is that it's all very well for us to be working with the renewable energy sector and Marks and Spencers and cuddly organic farms actually the real challenge is with these big polluters yeah. if we can't yeah. get the aviation sector to go green then there's not much point in working with the organic industry true taking the challenge head on um, well Tony I could speak to you probably here for, for hours but That'd I won't nice. it's, uh, it's starting to fill up here I know you're, you're going to be speaking in a, in a few minutes time so Thank you very much for being our Pleasure. first interview of the day. Thank um, you, good luck with the session well, this morning. I uh, hope you have a great well, day. Good luck with the meeting. Great, thank you. And uh, I believe now that uh, we're moving from this keynote strategy and innovation stage over to one of our three practical seminar theatres because Matt is over catching up with one of the speakers on the resource efficiency stage. So over to you, Matt. Yep, thank you very much, Luke. You, of course, set me a challenge. And so far, I have delivered because I am here right now with Suzanne Baker from Tech UK. Um, Suzanne, thank you very much for agreeing to have this chat. Um, you're, you're in high demand at the moment. There's a lot of people who want to talk to you, so I appreciate you having a, a quick chat with me. Um, so we've literally just finished um, from, your, from your session. How did, how did you find it, I suppose, just to start? Uh, really interesting. Um, to be honest, uh, I was talking about material efficiency standards, which probably sound like the most dullest thing in the world. People normally hear standards and switch off. Um, but I think it's really important for people to understand how it can have the potential to really shape product design um, and then how we deal with products at the, at the end of its first life. Um, but some of the other speakers as well were excellent. Um, I really like the chat from uh, Loughborough University, uh, Cranfield University. Um, really interesting research. Yeah, I think it was. It was a real um, mix across the board. It, it covered resource efficiency in, in all its kind of um, in depth, I suppose. It went out, and yeah, you, like you said, you kind of focused. And there was a, there was a real aspect on kind of e-waste. And you, you brought up um, briefly about. IoT, how that can drive, because last year you were here actually, I sat in a session where you talked about Internet Things and yeah. how and how that would be a real kind of driver for, for yeah. the circular economy. How how would you implore businesses who are about to kind of approach that kind of area of, of tech, like big data, IoT, to make sure they get it right? Um, to be honest, I think we're all on a bit of a learning curve at the moment. I think the exciting things I'm hearing about at, uh, at the moment is around big data. I think that's the kind of first uh, 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 and easiest um, technological opportunity to exploit. Um, as soon as you start getting hold of uh, data and being able to draw out what's important and present it to people in a way that they can start changing their behaviour, um, then some really magical things start to happen. Um, and that's a quite easy win for environmental professionals who are already in the habit of collecting and analysing vast amounts of data. 
Um, and this just gets them to um, increase the sophistication of, of being able to do that. So I think there is that's an area that's ripe for opportunity. Um, and I think the uh, opportunities from IoT are a little bit more further down the line. Um, as I mentioned in my talk, we're not seeing the growth and speed that we had anticipated, I think partly because of the cost of products, but also because there are still concerns around data, privacy and security. And so, um, um, but I think it's still going to be, um, uh, you know, huge and has um, a massive potential for uh, in a lot of applications. Um, so some of the work that we're going to be doing later this year um, is we're going to be looking at the role of IoT mm. and tech solutions in driving clean growth with a focus on uh, power, um, uh, industrial man uh, in manufacturing and those sorts of activities. Um, and also, oh, I forgot the last one, but yeah, <laughs> three core areas anyway. And so you mentioned that the, the uptake's been a bit, bit slow. What, what are the barriers? Is it a lack of trust from the consumers? Is it a lack of standards in place to, to enforce how it should happen? It's a little bit of both. So definitely we're at the stage where there is a lot of innovation occurring and no commonality with standards. That means that there is a difficult, you know, you might end up with products that can't communicate with each other. So I think it will take some while for the market to come find a, a standard and solution that will be acceptable to all um, and then there are um, what I mean there's certainly work within Tech UK at the moment really kind of establishing trust principles mm -hmm. around things like IOT but also data as well um, and I think we've got a huge job um, to talk to people uh, and communicate kind of how we can use these devices in a safe and trustworthy manner um, and that will take time mm. um, it won't happen overnight and I think you know as ever with um, you know we'll see proliferation in the commercial industrial sector first before we start seeing some of your opportunities being reached in the commercial space but actually that's where some more exciting stuff can happen I mean we're doing a lot of work around smart energy the smart grid mm -hmm. and if we can crack it there are so many advantages and opportunities from deploying a smart energy system that we're just not able to realize now. Well, that kind of uh, nicely builds on to my next question. Obviously, um, ED Live, one of the big themes of it is the Megatrend series, which of course you helped out on in advance. So, um, in your opinion, what's the, where do you see the biggest opportunity in these kind of trends in the future for, for a sustainable business? Um, I think it's definitely around, um, I mean, in, in the medium term, I think smart energy um, is huge. Uh, the way that we can manage our systems so we're not building um, capacity, energy capacity, generation capacity for peak demand, mm. but able to manage demand in a much more sophisticated way, um, will in a, 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 coupled with battery storage um, and technology will mean that we can store, deploy and regulate demands um, in, in a way which enables more renewables, more clean energy, more micro-generation and distributed energy to, to come onto the grid. Um, so um, I think you know, if we can crack the barriers there and really kind of overcome some of the coordination barriers, it, it's going to be massive. And I'll go back to the point about big data as well. Um, and we're hearing from industry um, how 
um, some firms, particularly energy intensives, are using, um, uh, I suppose, the, the next level smart metering hmm. um, to uh, help provide insights into how their energy is being used, which is dramatically Im um, impacting how they manage it. Um, um, and, uh, you know, you always wonder where you're going to squeeze the extra bit of energy efficiency out of the system, you know, after years of looking at it. But, you know, this is, this is providing new opportunities to, to find more and more savings within the system. So uh, I think it's a, a relatively cheap win, which we will see deployed kind of more rapidly. And then I suppose the kind of big systemic changes are around IoT mm -hmm. and how that can impact things like circular economy, allow us to understand how products are being used, how materials flow through supply chains, um, and enable us to, to recognize, I suppose, the value at different points of the supply chain, um, which will create the business case for businesses to respond and, and provide more circular So it makes, it makes the whole value chain much more transparent, I suppose. Definitely, yeah. yeah. And, um, a lot, of, a lot of companies right now are kind of embarking down the whole artificial intelligence aspect of it and I suppose just technological upgrades in general, kind of automating systems as, as a, you know, means to reduce energy and stuff like that. Yeah. We, um, we had an interesting point of view come across from a company called Inno Energy, like a European think tank, and they basically said that it's all good bringing in these technological advances, but the human capital aspect of a company still needs to be almost taught how to interact with these, with these new kind of devices. How, how crucial is it for a company to get that balance right? Yeah, and again, I think you're absolutely right. Um, some of the work that we've started to embark on looking at the future of work, mm. um, we have a program at Tech UK looking specifically at AI. Um, uh, you know, it suggests that, you know, rather than, yes, some jobs will be replaced, but there will be other jobs created in a similar way. Um, you know, so things like data scientists and um, technicians and, and others uh, will be re required to complement the kind of new technology that, that's being um, um, rolled out. Um, I think we're on, a again, a learning journey here. You know, it's too early to say kind of how that balance will be struck, but the RSA are doing some really... Um, I think that the chief executive of the RSA is doing that fantastic piece of work at the moment, looking at the future of work, looking okay. at the impact of all of this on 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 um, employment. Um, we're engaging with that work. I think it's going to be really interesting to see what his um, findings are. Okay, so it's it just sounds like a really kind of exciting time. You, you know, you mentioned the the learning curve, and is businesses should this be something they embrace, or should they be kind of cautiously waiting for others to to lead, or? It's interesting. I mean, looking at some of the survey work that EEF have done, looking at the fourth industrial revolution, as it's being called, um, a lot of manufacturers were um, uh, saw that saw this was going to be something that was going to shape their business, but hadn't quite made the investments yet, uh, and didn't really quite understand how necessarily applied to their business. And I think. Um, we've probably got a bit more work to do to kind of demonstrate the benefits in real terms. And I think actually, you know, we need more innovation um, uh, pilots uh, to kind of demonstrate kind of what this, what value it can bring to, to manufacturers. But of course, the, the bigger global manufacturers, you know, they are embracing it. They are, they are already kind of leading the way. Um, and I think it will be um, important for a competitive advantage to um, to match the the, the speed of, of technological um, uptake that we're seeing um, globally.
Okay, so then, well, I'm, I'm worried that we're pretty much encroaching on another session right now, yes. and I've also got to run off to actually find out if energy storage is the silver bullet. So, yes. thank you very much for your time. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> and um, as for as for you, Luke, I've I've answered your challenge. I'm going to go see if I can find some more people, but I'm going to go back to you to see if you can find someone right now. Yes, thank you very much, Matt. And here I am uh, back at the Strategy and Innovation Theatre um, and joined by uh, not one, but two speakers just fresh off the stage. The room has just cleared out for the uh, lunch break. Um, first of all, uh, we've got a returning guest um, back in episode 12, I believe it was, that we had you, Bridget Jackson from PwC, uh, on board. Uh, so good to see you again. How are you? Yeah, great to be here again. And we also have, uh, with Bridget here, the executive director and co-founder of Influence Map. Dylan Tanner. Dylan, how are you? Hi, I'm great. Nice to be here. Thanks. And so for anyone that doesn't know, Influence Map, they're an independent, um, not-for-profit, whose remit is to map, analyze, and score um, the extent to which corporates are um, influencing climate policy. So um, thanks very much for joining us and for giving that, that presentation. I mean, it's a fantastic discussion. I mean, what were your key takeaways from that? Bridget, we'll start with you. For me, I think we're at a really interesting juncture. Uh, geopolitics obviously is changing, and at the same time, we've got a building momentum and a head of steam around some of the really core sustainability topics, whether that's the SDGs or the COP21 and carbon. And so you can really see the positive role that business could have. Mm. So now is the time for people to step up and really set ambitious targets um, and some stretch into what they're doing. So I think it's a really exciting time. What did you think, Dylan? I mean, yeah, now's the time for businesses to step up. I mean, what did you get? What did you gain from this session? Did you get that feeling that that is happening? Um, yes, I, you know, just looking back since we launched uh, three years ago, uh, in the run-up to Paris, everyone's focus was on climate and climate policy and that ambition, and uh, we mapped out the corporate landscape to see what companies were doing on specific national legislation and sort of behind the scenes and found. Uh, Quite a mixed bag, uh, mm. quite a lot of opposition, and um, you know, m most of the companies not really on board when it come, came to the policy. Uh, since then, we, we've noticed a shift, and more than half of the companies now want uh, stronger regulations globally, you know, averaged out over, the, over, over their jurisdictions, and they're pushing for it. Uh, but still, a, still a, a kind of an incumbent group of the status quo brigade mm. who you know, energy, energy intensive companies who are holding back and using the trade associations to do so. So a lot of challenges and, uh, and but lots of positive stuff as well. Yeah, and it's interesting because you mentioned that the work you did, I think it was, we reported on it, I think back in 2015, early 2015, I think it was, and it was so 45% of the world's 100 largest um, global industrial companies at that time, you said, were in some way obstructing climate change legislation. So that's quite a shocking stat, almost half of businesses, big businesses. I mean, since then, though, we've had Paris, SDGs implemented. We've got more and more companies embarking on things like science-based targets. So is there a feeling that companies are starting to move in the right direction? Um, yes, uh, not fast enough probably for the campaign groups and Greenpeace, but definitely it's in that direction. I think we've We've seen quite a lot of pushback against uh, the, the U.S. political situation and the people trying to distance, distance themselves from, from, from that position. So, yeah, and you just need more of the same and more big companies to stand up and not be afraid of getting into the weeds of uh, positive lobbying, we call it. Mm. And Bridget, I mean, you want to add something there? Or? Well, I think it's... Um 
uh, it's interesting to think about where business is at and I'm hoping that the political situation in different countries around the world isn't going to stall mm. the momentum behind the various sustainability programs but there is a new narrative where I think sustainability practitioners can really make a difference and that's on technology because yeah. most businesses know that they are either going to be disrupted they need to disrupt themselves or they need to harness technology for economic good but there's another story to that because if you use a sustainability lens then technology could be used to find us climate stable solutions and to get us to the next generation and systems that work for the environment. So if every company were to go and use the sustainability lens and say, what are we doing with technology? Mm. How can we use it to really drive that, to make a difference for the environment? That would be fantastic. On top of that, every company is using technology. So how about they go and look at the impacts they've got, social and environmental, which could be exacerbated, and just make sure that before we get down that path of later on going, oops, wish we'd thought about that, we do it now. We think now we already know what the issues are and take some simple actions to mitigate for those already. Mm -hmm. and, um, and it's quite interesting you say that because obviously PwC have just launched its uh, responsible technology approach. Um, you gave a, touched on it a little bit in your presentation and you know, stay tuned to ED because we're going to be covering that as a case study very soon as well, I believe. So, um, but your session, Bridget, was, um, it was all, I mean, well, the whole session was really about kind of um, leaving compliance behind in some respects. Um, What's your kind of view on that at the moment, given the uncertainty that's taking place politically? Um, does policy still have a big role to play in shaping the agenda here? Or should businesses be looking at going beyond that and almost only treating it as a compliance exercise? Or is that the kind of wrong way of looking at it? Because at the moment, from the outside in, it looks like there's not enough of a driver there. And if you were just to comply with current levels of green policy, particularly here in the UK, you wouldn't exactly be very progressive. This is the old chestnut, isn't it? And you're going to have companies that are leading, middle and laggard, mm. as in anything, and at different stages of their journey. So I think for a lot of the leading companies who have set out their purpose, they know that actually this agenda is part of their reputation. It's a part of trust from their consumer base, their customer base, and they have no choice for it. Where policy and regulation will come in is actually in getting the consistency that brings everyone along on that journey. So I definitely think we need it. Hopefully, as I say, I, I, I'm just keeping my fingers crossed that the uncertainty for the next couple of years doesn't stall us because mm. there's a following wind on quite a lot of the sustainability agenda at the moment. Yeah, and uh, Dylan, Bridget just mentioned the laggards and the leaders. You obviously had that in your in your uh, presentation. You had that fantastic slide that was a, a little bit of a matrix between um, the the active laggards, the uh, occasional laggards, as you put it, the true leaders and the silent leaders. Um, wanted to ask you a question about that. Actually, first of all, what I found quite interesting was you had in the, in the, in the top left of the, of the box, in the, in the active laggard section, you had companies like BT, Shell. These are companies that actually over the past few years, even on ED, we've reported on a, a few things they've been doing that at least indicate they're moving in the right direction. But your work is obviously based on the hard data, the facts. So what do you make of companies like that that are in some respects pushing in the right direction, but I guess at the macro level are still in some way lagging behind? Um, I, I think that we're looking in quite a specific niche, so mm. we wouldn't comment on their social programs or other stuff. We're looking at their interactions with, with the regulators and with the, with the policy okay. related to yeah. low carbon climate policy. And, and then in that we found that they're they're really in opposition through, through directly and through their trade associations. Um, so if, for example, they make a top line statement of support 
for sustainability or climate policy without linking to any specific legislation, we would neither credit them or discredit them for that. We're looking at specific comments on, and this is where you get into the weeds of lobbying. It's not to do with the sustainability statements, to do with their interactions with Brussels, mm. with London, and the meetings and consultations and etc. It's quite a sensitive topic, yeah. and, and, and a, lot, a lot of companies are, are quite sensitive about our analysis, but when I qualify that it's a very specific piece of analysis, um, and I should say that investors are very interested in that specific slice because it comes down to regulatory compliance in many cases, and, and, and that has big costs and penalties if, if, it's, if it's not correct. So mm. it, it is a sensitive topic, but it's of great interest to uh, various parts of society, not least investors and obviously the campaigners and the regulators themselves. Mm. Okay, so um, let's end on a little bit of a million dollar question and put you both on the spot here. Bridget, you work for an organization. You're quite lucky to be working in an organization that's really got on board with this agenda, it's fair to say, over the past couple of years in particular. Dylan, you write about some companies that occasionally are lagging behind in certain areas, particularly in these kind of policy areas. What would both of your advice be for a sustainability professional that is perhaps working in a company that isn't necessarily a laggard, but isn't a leader and wants, they want their company to be a leader and they want to push, say, for example, where you were a few years ago back in 2012, Bridget? I mean, would you have any key advice now for someone working in an organization where it just feels like general movement and understanding is still quite slow? Um. I guess one of the key lessons that I have taken away from the last five years is in giving permission to people all around the business to actually make change happen. I think generally in businesses there are a lot of people who want to do the right thing mm -hmm. and somehow they don't either have the permission or they don't have the energy to get there and if you can bring them together and demonstrate that they can make the change happen, you can unleash um, a lot more passion, energy, success around the business. Because as a sustainability team, you can't do it all yourselves anyway. Mm. Dylan, would you add anything to that? Uh, you, know, you know, I think that politics are involved in large organizations and, and Bridget's explained how to navigate these without sticking your head out too much. And mm. obviously it has to be, a um, you have to look at the personal situation and where you sit and where this issue you think is uh, is incongruent sits and uh, on the issue of lobbying it's quite a sensitive issue so tread carefully is all, all I can say but there is a support network out there amongst the uh, the, the NGO community and probably amongst uh, entities like PwC who have a big sustainability practice and can maybe provide some advice mm. Mm. Uh, well it's a long-term thing yeah well exactly and on that note um, it looks like it's filling up here again uh, Dylan Bridget thank you very much um, Go and have some lunch and enjoy the rest of your day. Now, um, so I think uh, actually we're going to be moving over onto another sustainability leader where um, George, I believe, is over on the on-site Generation Theatre. So over to you, George. Yep. Thank you, Luke. And uh, I'm now outside the on-site Generation Theatre and I'm joined by Maria Spiro and Imogen Cust from M&S. So how are you both enjoying the day so far? Good, great, thank you. I've just been walking around, looking at the different products and dropping in and out from different sections, so it's been good so far. Mm. Now there are, really are some interesting stands around here. Um, so I just wanted to get a flavour basically about what you're talking about in your sessions. I know that you're coming up in a minute, uh, Maria, and you're going to be talking about demand response, am I correct? Maybe yeah. you just give like a flavour about some of the stuff you'll be talking about. Yeah, so I'm talking about demand response in a minute. Um, we are going to be talking about uh, the project we've done so far and how 
um, we are working with National Grid and our aggregator to upgrade our generators on site and therefore generate our own electricity on site and then kind of sell it back to the grid. Um, and that kind of has uh, two or three different benefits for us. That's helping us with our um, business continuity as such. So we know that if there's a power card, our generators will come on and they will support our stores. Uh, at the same time, there's a revenue um, stream for us. Um, and it's just, it's, it's just great to know that you're, you're helping National Grid to reduce their carbon emissions. Mm -hmm. Um, and how long has this been going on for now, this project? So we've started, we actually started about five years ago okay. with about load, with load shedding where we were trying to move our consumption outside the peak hours, uh, but it's actually um, come, come to life in the last two years when we started with a trial where we upgraded the generator in a remote side and tried to see how that would work and then we continue the project for more of the learnings. Uh, we now have 13 sites that are upgraded and can work in parallel with National Grid. Okay, and I'm sort of interested to know how this works with the rest of the business, uh, specifically getting on board you know, the internal workforce, because behaviour change must be quite an issue here. I was wondering, has, that been, has it been an issue? Or has everyone got on board with it quite easily? So originally it was really difficult to get the project off the ground. Um, everyone was saying, so because when you want to upgrade uh, the switch gear, you need to put the power down in a store. Well, putting the power down in an M&S store, that means you've got a lot of product that's in fridges and freezers. Mm -hmm. So it was about how do we handle all of that product. We, we have now developed a process where we, we will empty our cold rooms and our fridges um, right before the store closes. With, sorry we'll empty the cold rooms when, before the store closes, then we'll empty the, the fridges as such in the foothold mm -hmm. um, as soon as the store closes. You know, then our engineers will arrive to site, they will, they will upgrade uh, the switchgear and then in the morning the store, the store staff comes together again, they fill in uh, the, the foothold and the cold rooms um, from the refrigerator wagons. Mm -hmm. um, what that gives us is because we need all that manpower overnight, they, they are all aware of the project, so it helps us with our communication, with engagement with the store. Um, and what we are doing is a wider engagement program where we tell them why we're doing the project. Um, so we talk about triad and the cost of triad to our business. Mm -hmm. So if we receive a triad warning uh, for the day ahead or even the same day, we have a, comms, a communications mechanism where we will send an email out to all the stores and tell them that it is a triad warning day today. You know what you're meant to be doing. You know, between four and seven, try and use as little electricity as possible. Mm -hmm. And if you have a generator on site, it will come. Uh, it will come on, so don't don't worry about that. Mm. And we have actually seen them all come together. Um, believe it or not, people in MS they 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 want to make it work, yeah. and they want to save money for their business and for their stores, so they work with us. And uh, I was just overhearing a conversation between my editor Luke Nichols and Bridget Jackson, and she said it's important to communicate, but communicate in a different way with each department. Is this something that you find at MS as well? Yeah, definitely. So we, um, what you tell the business continuity unit and your regional maintenance manager and the store are slightly different stories as such. So it, all the benefits to each one of them are different. So we try and tailor our communications to who we are speaking to. So if you're talking internally, you know, they don't need to know all the technical details behind it. What mm. they need to know is that there will be a power down and you know they shouldn't be alarmed about that. Um, when you're talking to your maintenance managers, you tell them that you know as part of this project, we will be servicing both the generator and the switchgear, so it will reduce your maintenance costs. And then when you're speaking to the store, you're telling them you know you're bringing it down 
to life for them and saying, you know, this is your generator. They don't need to know all the technicals that go behind it. Mm. They just need to know that that generator will be able to start remotely without them doing anything about it. Mm -hmm. You know, all the fuel deliveries and everything are, are automated, so they don't need to worry about it. So it's, it's kind of just making it as simple as possible for them to understand. Brilliant. And uh, Imogen, I'll turn to you now. I know you were speaking earlier um, uh, about the energy efficiency within MNS, and um, I was just quite interested to get a flavour of how some of these technologies uh, are trialled. You know, they've got research and development. Just maybe go tell me about the process that you go through. Yeah, it was, it was uh, great speaking earlier, actually, because. Um, we spent the last sort of three or four years really looking again about how we research because we, we we think we're quite we're proud of what we do with our planning commitments to actually look for new innovations for energy saving for water saving. Um, as the same with lots of companies, our utilities is well, in M&S it's the third uh, largest bill that we have after salaries and, and waste. So there's always a. a um, a desire for it in the business, but it works very well with our wider sustainability goals. Mm -hmm. um, so we've been looking back to look forward at the moment to see what we've been trying and testing. So I was talking about today the lessons we've learned. It was very much around how you test stuff, the way you, the rigor you put behind that, so you can give you data, so mm. you can actually go back to it and understand the how when your uh, product comes to us, how we manage to filter through that to actually find the best stuff. Um, and then through trial and testing and, and the lessons that we actually can take from that. And, and we were quite frank today to talk about things that hadn't worked so well, mm. products that, um, or the ways we tested it maybe, um, that didn't work, didn't work for us. And then we think, okay, next time we'll do it differently just to gather the right information so we can find those, those really good, uh, those, those nuggets of gold mm. in the opportunities that are out there. Um, and then we were also talking about the kind of what we've done. So it was really good to go back and sort of see how, you know, the kind of products that are important for us. So say for lighting, we've spent the last couple of years, it's been a challenge around swapping out equipment that just doesn't kind of, isn't compatible. So we're looking at swapping the fluorescence, the metal halides, uh, the halogens over to LEDs. And so actually we often don't want to um, change the carcasses within the store. So we're looking for these things that can switch in and out, from a, which is quite challenging from a technical perspective, without actually changing the fabric of the store. Mm. Um, but we're also quite focused on how it looks, so how we um, how we, how we illuminate our products better, kind of for retail, because that's what we're there for, mm. while working on that energy goal. So we're looking at LEDs, um, talking about what we've been doing in fridges, um, uh, talking about innovation around how we uh, design a fridge because we were quite particular about how our customers want to see our stores and how we have them visually. So talking about um, swapping out for refrigerant because obviously we're moving to go for a, um, a natural refrigerant product, product which is uh, we're quite proud that we do that moving towards uh, CO2. Um, also how the flow of the fridges work to try and maintain the, the best efficiency possible. We have quite a lot of fridges in our stores compared to other retailers so it's a really big uh, energy demand, demand for us. And then looking to the future to see what we're looking at. Demand side management something we've sort of like been working on the last couple of years. Um, controls, HVAC is something that's maybe maybe sort of forgotten about a little bit. So it's looking back to see what we've done to go, okay, what's in our database? What's the next thing? Mm. Um, so it's really interesting actually. It's been really interesting preparing to do the presentation because mm. it's actually been going through what we've done and finding the really interesting stories behind everything. So mm. yeah, yeah. I mean, it seems to have worked wonders uh, for MS. I mean, so what you started this well, Plan A 10 years ago, and I think you've reduced energy use by about nearly almost 40%. Yep, 39% I think is the, the last target for 2020. So, um, 
Yeah, we are proud of what we've done. I think we've got more to, to do, but um, yeah, I think I think for us and today was very important about sharing that information and mm. being quite open, open about what we do, the kind of products that we, we've looked at, but also those things that haven't worked so well and what we're, we're looking to do for next. Mm. And I, I mean, I suppose it's, you do have this leadership within the sector. Um, I suppose other companies will be looking to adopt a similar model in terms of your energy efficiency. With this leadership, does it come pressure from uh, you know stakeholders always expecting you know to provide the absolute premium in terms of uh, energy usage? I think I mean for me that's always been the beauty around a lot around sustainability, even if it's. Um even into water, but certainly in energy, because you have that lovely synergy between the, the benefits from a from a, um, a payback perspective versus what we're putting in. Um, so, so I think I think there's always the message to sell, and for what we looked at today, it was about building that business case. So, some of the examples we gave today would be. The, the trialing and testing we do and the way you do it properly can actually save money when you're doing these rollouts. So there's lessons to be learned on how you do it mm. and, and what you do. Um, but I think we've had some good success stories which, which feeds back to our stakeholders. So I think that's, and actually a lot of what MS is about are customers. Mm -hmm. So it's not just around the good messages of, of sustainability, but it's also about making our stores better and look good um, and in be inviting places. And they do work together quite well. Okay. And, um, oh, sorry. Yeah, what I was going to say is that one of our values is innovation. So what we are both lucky to be part of is, is it's a team where we're allowed to innovate, we're allowed to try our things, we're allowed to test them, and if they fail, they failed. Mm. At least you know that you failed happy because you had the option to trial something, um, and I think that's what enables us to be at the forefront as such. We're willing to spend money to to, te to test something, to test our technology, mm. um, and it, you know if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But if it does work, then we're ready to roll it out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we are good at is being able to test different products and different um, technologies. So I suppose that would be your message to other companies trying to uh, undergo this same process: is don't give up, keep going until it works. So. Yeah, and and be and be challenging within the organisation as well. Mm -hmm. um, challenging around the data you capture, making sure you don't get too carried away too quickly to, to get the right information through. Because a lot of the trials that we do, they come back around again. You know, you'll do something, we'll think it's good, we'll trial it, maybe it's not so good, and we come back. And actually being able to go back and seeing how we did it. We both of us sat down looking at a fridge project the other day, going through reams of, of sort of data and regression analysis to know we tested it this way, so when we're testing the next product, we can do it the same way. So we, we can be really comfortable with what's going to come out, because at the end of the day it's about building a business case. Okay, that's fascinating. Um, thank you both for your time. I know, Maria, you need to get back I on stage now. So, uh, so thank you very much. Thanks for having us. Pleasure. So um, now my next target is to get in touch with Chris Large. Uh, he's speaking later at the resource efficiency stage this afternoon. So I'm going to go try track him down and potentially bring him over to have a chat with the rest of the ED team on a table. So watch out for that. Okay, yeah, thank you very much, George, uh, and welcome back. Here we are then, um, around the table, um, and George, you have brought us back, a uh, special guest uh, for this episode, because sat with myself, uh, Matt, and George here is Global Action Plan's senior partner, Chris Large. Chris, hello, hello, how are you? Good, thanks, how are you doing? Yeah, not too bad. So, you've just been sat in a session not too far away from us, um, mm -hmm. or two sessions, is it, I think you've been chairing? Or? Yes, chaired, chaired two in a row, you're working me hard today. <laughs> <laughs> Good sessions? Yes, really good, very well attended. Uh, the first session on procurement, um, where I had to dust off my procurement knowledge from 
12 years ago when I did a procurement job and combined that with my environmental um, side and uh, then the final session on uh, behaviour change which is something I'm much more familiar with yeah, I think was yeah. a bit more useful. <laughs> yeah and any particular I mean project or person that stood out across those two sessions was there anything you kind of learnt from, from chairing them? Uh, yeah I think one main theme that really came out of that last session with Ollie from Costa yeah. and David from Exo Noble was um, in trying to incentivize customers to um, do the environmental behavior we want them to do, whether it's bring back um, coffee cups and recycle them correctly, or bring back unused paint um, from, those, from the sheds um, mm. that where we've all stored those half-used tins of paint. The financial incentive doesn't seem to be working. Mm. It doesn't seem to be enough to get people to actually bring those back, which I thought was really interesting. Mm. Yeah, interesting. And Costa is an interesting one in particular, I think, from a behavioral change perspective, both, both on a consumer level and a staff level and the reason being I think with consumers it's you, the touch points are very limited when it comes to things like coffee cups or any kind of recycling or anything like that in terms of it being a fast transaction um, and with staff I mean um, you know baristas can be working part-time mm -hmm. it can be sort of not yeah. something that's their main thing so they can be it can be quite hard to engage them how do you, I mean, uh, putting you on the spot here, but it's <laughs> a, a big challenge. How do you solve that problem? When you're an organisation like that, what's the, what's the key? I suppose, I guess I'll pin you down to the staff side of things, yeah. because I think that's the one that's most relevant here today in terms of engaging staff on things. When there's staff that you've got that are not necessarily full-time, or clearly this is the thing that they're not doing like as their mainstay, how do you engage those people? Well, I think the first thing to be um, clear on is what you really want them to do. Mm -hmm. um, it's really difficult if you say to somebody, can you just save energy, please? Or can you save energy by 20%? Yeah. Then, well, I don't really know what that means. <laughs> if it's turn that thing off at four o'clock on the dot every day, please, and don't turn that thing off, leave that thing on, um, then they know what they're doing. So I think being really direct and um, making really, uh, really simple explanation of how to do behavior change well, I think Richard Thaler's um, explanation is great. He's the Professor of Psychology at the University of Chicago who wrote the book Nudge. Um, so he's a good authority on this. He says you can either, um, there's only three things you can do, you can either make um, a behaviour more attractive to someone, you can make it expected that they should do it, or you can make it easier to do. If you want to get someone to do something that they're not currently doing, make it easy, more attractive, or expected. Simple as that. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> um, if only it was. So anyway, I mean, we haven't even touched on Global Action Plan. How are things going? What, what's the what's the big focus? What's exciting about Global Action Plan? Well, the, the, there's two massive things that we're doing at the moment. Um, the first one is National Clean Air Day, uh, which we are running on June the 15th. We're the coordinators on behalf of a coalition of 50 different um, health institutions, universities, local authorities and charities, the likes of the British Lung Foundation, the British Heart Foundation, NHS Trust like Great Ormond Street, um, the uh, six clean air zone cities, Leeds, Manchester, Birmingham, Nottingham, Derby and Southampton, uh, and Greater London, the Scottish Government. Those organisations have all come together to say, the public needs to know more about air pollution if they're going to make the smart choices that can help to uh, help to reduce the amount of pollution they're exposed to and can help them to cut the amount of pollution that they cause. Okay. Uh, so June 15th, go to the website www.cleanairday.org.uk and you will find out all the information you need to know about National Clean Air Day and how you can get involved running events um, or tweeting and social media campaigns from your business. Mm. Um, and the second big thing that we're doing is um, looking at young people and consumption as a challenge. Um, okay. We're getting increasing numbers of young people saying, I don't want to be defined by what I own and by what I buy. 
I want to be defined by who I am. Um, I don't want to um, be working for stuff. I want stuff to work for me. Mm. Um, I don't want to fill my flat. I want to fill my mind. I want to have experiences. I don't want to create landfill. I want to create memories. So. Um, what we're doing is working with young people to actually help them do that. Okay. Um, it's really difficult to break out of those cycles because people expect to be bought presents. Um, people expect that they should buy you presents. Mm. And maybe at Christmas you don't want a load of stuff that you know you're not going to be using, but you end up getting all these presents. How do you actually get out of that without offending someone? Mm. Uh, yeah, how do you get out of this cycle? So we've, we've started a new project called Live Life to the Max, which is working with a few hundred young people over the next couple of years to go through a very intensive program uh, where we, we uncover what it is that is people are unhappy with in their relationship with stuff. Mm. And we work through how they can change that. Because it just doesn't revolve around themselves changing just what they do. Yeah. It's normally your friends, your family, the school that you go to, the social construct you're within, uh, having to change the way that you uh, that you perhaps even express how much you love somebody um, by <laughs> how much by, by what you buy them. It's deep, yeah. It's yeah, change yeah, it's life. Deep. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, fascinating it's, stuff. It is fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Good luck with all that. And um, yeah, I mean, I think it's probably about time to wrap up. But I thought that it would be worth us all uh, maybe perhaps giving us our or telling us our show highlight. Um, of the day, of day one so far. Matt, let's start with you. Anything stand out for you today? I mean, it was really interesting, um, the energy storage um, one that I sat on earlier. I didn't actually get to sit on it because it was that busy. Yeah. <laughs> didn't get a space, there was no headphones. But I did record it and I was listening back to it earlier. And the amount of interest that there is in um, in just like hydrogen as, as a concept, this yeah. is clearly something that people want to work and they're really interested about. So that was nice. But um, I had a chat earlier with Suzanne Baker from Tech UK. We were talking about, interestingly, about that kind of staff behaviour aspects and about how that then interacts with these new kind of technological advancements. If you've then got automated systems that reduce the energy management, is that can you ignore the behaviour change aspect of it or do you still need to interact the two together? It was, uh, I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. Uh, very briefly, I think. <laughs> if there's something you can do to uh, stop people having to remember to do something, mm then great, yeah. use, use technology, use a system to, to, so you can take that weight off someone's mind and make it easy for them. Um, however, if you, tend, if you do that without engaging people and saying this is the new way the system works, they quite often can mess it up. Or they're like, well, this system doesn't work the way it used to, so it must be broken. Um, and therefore, I'm gonna try and fix it myself. Um, so yeah, okay. think, use technology by all means, but do talk to people yeah. still. Mm. Okay, George, your highlight? Um, my highlight was the first session with Tony Juniper, um, excellent speaker. Uh, he provided this speech was sort of like a tour de force for, you know, sustainable business. Um, the actual topic was supposed to be on Brexit and how regulation is going to be affected in the next few years. And he turned it on its head and said, rather than, you know, regulators taking charge, it should be businesses. He looked, okay. looked at, like, companies as Kingfisher, he said, like, their act on deforestation by protecting uh, forest or protecting your business and it, I just thought it was very fascinating he's a, as again he's a great speaker so, okay yeah. well I had two highlights written down one was energy storage session being completely packed yeah. and, and the other was uh, Tony Juniper so <laughs> <laughs> I'll pop out and say the highlight is having Chris Large here on the table oh, thank you uh, very so much no, thank you Chris and um, I suppose 
there we have it then. Um, we said we'd bring you a crack of a, a comeback episode um, of the Sustainable Business Covered podcast, and I think we have um, six or seven interviews, I think, mm-hmm. in this one episode from the show floors, um, and it's not over yet. So this brings to an end part one of this episode of the podcast. Join us tomorrow for uh, a roundup of day two of ED Live, where we'll be bringing you more interviews and show highlights throughout the day. So until tomorrow, it's goodbye from all of us. Goodbye. Bye. 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 Bye.